0: I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Tonight, we're going to be talking about a subject we brought up a lot recently, because 1 Peter deals with this constantly. The subject we'll be dealing with is suffering, evil, bad experiences, and hardships, that sort of thing. And I want to start, before I get into this passage, by just explaining one thing that I think will help us as we're dealing with the topic of suffering. And that is that the answer of why is there evil or why does God allow evil or why is there, su- I think suffering is probably a more accurate term because some things aren't necessarily morally evil, they're just, it's, they're bad, experientially, it's, they're suffering. But I think it helps us if we separate the answer into two different answers. Because one of them is an intellectual answer, and it's sort of answering the question of, yes, why is there? And the other is the emotional answer. Let me me explain. The intellectual answer is something along the lines of, well, God has an overall plan, and he will bring good forth even from the bad that he allows to happen right now. God's plan involves free will, and allowing his creatures to have free will, yet preventing all suffering, is impossible. You can't have free will, and yet not all the consequences of that free will. And so that's the intellectual answer, right? Those are at least a couple of the components of that answer. Now the problem here is that most people walk away completely unsatisfied. Because when they hear the intellectual explanation of why suffering and why is, is evil allowed, that it's temporary and that it's, that, um, that it's part of the whole free will thing, it comes together as a package deal. They walk away unsatisfied because they realize that their problem with suffering was not intellectual, it was emotional the emotional answer is totally different the emotional answer to suffering is trust in the Lord that's it i mean that and that is the best answer ultimately that's it it's like when jesus said to the disciples don't let your hearts be troubled you believe in god believe in me but here's the solution trust you just you have to you have to trust him. that when you when you have problems with what's happening you have to lean on the who of God, God's character and his goodness and his kindness, and just and just trust in him. Like we're sort of experiencing a very long, and difficult trust fall <laughs> into the arms of God. And this is not some blind faith position. I mean, we have great reason to trust in the Lord. We have great confidence in our God. But the suffering issue is, is diff- difficult because people will ask the intellectual question, but what they're really with is the emotional struggle. Now, I just want to point something out. Christianity has an answer to the emotional struggle of sufferers, But the alternatives, which is usually a self-made religion where someone just kind of like hodgepodges together a bunch of random beliefs they've gathered over the years. Or an atheistic type thing where there is no God and you're like, yeah, I don't believe in God because because of the problem of evil. And I go, well, you still have a problem of evil, you just have no solution. Because God is our solution. He's the answer to that problem. But when you abandon God and you turn from a Christian worldview, you, you no longer have an answer for the problem of evil. There are those who say evil is a, evil is an illusion. There are actually religions out there that go, oh, there is no evil. We're just imagining it. <laughs> I'll be like, well, then what? Explain to me about the problem of imagination because it's way too powerful <laughs> for me. <clears throat> but Christianity goes beyond that. There's actually an answer for the problem of evil in the person of Christ and in the plan of God. And in the, uh, as we are seeing today, you know, no weapon that's formed against me shall remain. Unfortunately, the way in which these weapons don't remain, sometimes we're like the anvil being hammered on by the weapon. And over time, the weapon wears down and the anvil remains. Well, what I really want is the weapons to disappear right now. But sometimes God's plan is for us to be the anvil and to just continue to abide through this difficult suffering experience. I know that there are many believers who feel very strong in the faith until they have back pain for a significant period of time. And then or or they're sick for an extremely long period of time, or they're in some sort of difficult physical experience, and then all of a sudden they're like, Why is my faith so weak? Like, I thought I was good. Why is my faith so weak right now? Like, I'm doubting the Lord because I've had this flu for too long. And and that's the emotional problem. I don't understand what I don't understand. And for that, we must certainly sort of lean on God's good character and know that he never promised us something different. In fact, he promised us this very thing. And we must rely on that. So let's dig in now. First Peter 4 1. It says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. <clears throat> the same mind. Now, Jesus had a specific attitude toward suffering. And we're asked to adopt Jesus's attitude towards suffering. I love the fact that Jesus sacrificed for me. Okay, I love singing about it, thinking about it. It enters my prayers constantly. Lord, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for suffering for me. But now we're told that there's a cross for us too. You know, oh yeah, you love me. Okay, come take up your cross and follow me. Wait, my cross? Jesus, no. I mean, it's all about your cross. You suffer, but I don't. I don't. I don't go through that sort of stuff, but actually that's exactly what is in the, the plan and the path for most of us. And the danger of <clears throat> sometimes the prosperity preaching that we've been encountering recently um, is that it minimizes the suffering that Christians will go through, and it leaves Christians unprepared for the serious traumas that life will present them with. When they lose loved ones, when they experience hardships, when there's medical, when there's emotional attacks, when there's spiritual warfare, when there's financial ruin, and um, and they're surprised. And that's unfortunate. We're actually told here to take on Jesus's attitude. Jesus's attitude. So today we're speaking of our attitude towards suffering. What is your posture towards pain? That's <laughs> what we're asking. My attitude towards suffering. The mature believer, the mature Christian, will see suffering as several things. I'll give you. I think maybe is it four four things that the mature Christian sees or has an attitude towards suffering it. Number one, they see suffering as temporary. This is the constant droning statement of the scriptures, right? That the the temporary sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared to the glories that will be revealed in us. It's just a suffering for a season. It's considered small and inconsequential, even though it might be great right now, compared to what's to come. Um, It's just not even compared. This is constantly preached in the Bible. In Hebrews 11, we read about the hall of faith. And what do all these people do? All the men in the hall of faith and the women, they went through a temporary pain for, a, for an eternal pleasure. That's what, they, that's what they did. They traded up, you know. Second um, 2 Corinthians talks about this, about how this suffering is temporary and the God of comfort will be with us. James talks about it coming all will when you fall into various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work. And then it's in other words, it's looking to the end of the trial. I, I must always, in the in the beginning, in the middle. I must always be looking at the end of that trial for what God is doing in my life. That's the mature believer. First Peter, of course, talks about this quite a lot. And Jesus preached about it all the time. In the Beatitudes, right, the the, the, the attitudes you should have, the Beatitudes, <laughs> that's not what that really means, but it works, right? I mean, it actually applies fairly well to, the, to that passage. But you can read about this in the Sermon on the Mount, and these Beatitudes, it's it's a blessing on those who are mourning, a blessing on those who are poor, a blessing on those who are meek, a blessing on those who are what? Temporarily in a low state and how God will bring them into a permanent, beautiful, wonderful high state. Humble yourself and God will exalt you. Suffering is that temporary down before the eternal glory that is to come. And our attitude should always be that we, what, we want to have the B attitude of this suffering is just for now. And perhaps your suffering is a chronic illness that will not leave you for 70 years of life. That's it? Just 70? I mean, when you've been there 10,000 years with a good back, good eyes, and a good life, you know, you're going to look back at that temporary suffering and see it for what it is. So our goal now is to look at it now with the perspective of eternity. I've always wanted to make it a goal of mine. I know this might sound kind of strange, but I'm, I'm 37 now as my wife keeps reminding me. And, um, and I haven't made this a goal for quite a number of years, since I was probably 20, 21 years old, to try to look at my life as though I was someone a lot older than I am. Does that make sense? Because I admire the perspective that I see in those who are older than me, the perspective they have on family, the perspective they have on marriage, on life, on ministry, on God, on the Bible. All that. So I'm like, Lord, help me to see now, like, as though I'm looking at it from the future, because hindsight is 2020, and so um, so it's temporary. Jesus also taught about looking at having treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, because it's it's permanent as opposed to temporary. He said we would lose our lives to gain our life for eternity, and then of course in Revelation, when we read about things being as hard as they could possibly be in the middle of the the, the seven trumpets, right? The seven seals, the seven bowls, they're all poured out. The final bowl's poured out. What, what happens next? Jesus goes, hey, I'm coming quickly. And there he whispers this beautiful encouragement to those who are at like the worst moment of <coughs> earth right there. And he says, I'm coming quickly. I'm coming quickly. So he's telling them to look forward to what is coming soon, which is him and his eternal kingdom. So the first thing mature believers sees suffering as is temporary. So the mature believer is not necessarily mature because they have discernment, or because they can speak in tongues, or because they can quote Bible verses. I mean, maybe they just have a good memory. They're mature because of the way they deal with suffering. I think suffering reveals our character more than most things do, unfortunately, (laughs) for me anyhow. But the second thing the mature believer sees suffering as is, number two, they see it as fruitful. They actually see their suffering as fruitful, just like Jesus did. He went temporarily to the cross for eternal glory and to bring us eternally into his family. He also saw it as fruitful for the joy that was set before him. He the cross. He did it to purchase our souls. He saw the fruit of what he was going to experience. I'm going to arm myself with that same attitude, the scripture says. What fruit? Not important. I mean, it's actually dangerous if you start to feel like you have to get to know what fruit is coming from your suffering. Cause you ever been that per, I'm like laying sick in bed and I'm like, I can't study. I can't teach. I can't do any of the awesome things I do for the Lord. I'm laying there in bed, useless, and I'm sitting there like watching Netflix, still, and I'm going, Lord, what good is coming out of this? And the answer is always the same. Mike, wrong question. Why should I assume that I will even know what good, as if God's, you know, has to pass it through me before it gets approved. It's kind of the other way around, you know. It kind of has to go through him, not me. But if God sees fit to allow it, I should trust that there's fruit because the Scripture says that it's Romans eight twenty-eight. We know, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to His purpose. I know it's a, it's a confident knowledge thing. There is fruit. James one again talks about this. Let patience have its perfect work. How do I let patience have its perfect work, James? Well, you just you just keep being patient. scripture to say. That. Yes, well, that's why you need that, maybe, is because you don't like it. Just let patience have its perfect word. And then, of course, First uh, Peter chapter one, we talked about how the, that suffering produces this good fruit. And um, and then the third thing a mature believer see suffering as: so temporary fruitful, and then they also see. Check this out: they see suffering as fellowship. Fellowship. There is a fellowship in suffering. In fact, Philippians three ten talks about it. Paul the apostle says that he might experience the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Well, what is that? There is a certain kinship in suffering. In fact, this is why we have what we call support groups for various types of illnesses or different types of things. You know, if you have cancer, there's a support group for you. If your spouse does, there's a support group for spouses, people who have spouses with cancer. There's support groups for all these types of things because there's a certain kinship or connection that that happens (laughs) when people have shared sufferings. And when I suffer... Persecuted for Christ, I grow closer to him, because he was too. And so I experience a certain kinship. And There's a depth in my connection to Jesus that grows when I suffer persecution. That is so, so interesting to me. Um, that, again, that was Philippians 3.10 where Paul actually talks about that. I also experience a kinship and a connection with other believers that I wouldn't have had otherwise. I remember hearing a story about how Charles Spurgeon was preaching a message, and he he taught about um, about I don't know God's glory or something like. He was probably always talking about God's glory. That's yeah, Spurgeon for you. <laughs> but this guy came up to him afterwards, and he says, "I've been suffering with depression," and so and so said I should talk to you because Charles Spurgeon would suffer with these bouts of feeling depressed, although it wasn't like a diagnosed mental condition or something. He just would feel these bouts of depression, you know. And so Charles Spurgeon just says okay, here, here's all the garbage I experience and all the pain I feel, and it's just lame, but I trust in the Lord, and he brings me through it, and da-da-da, and he's like, I'm sorry, I ain't got nothing better for you. (laughs) At the end of it, the guy was just like, thank you, that's what (laughs) I needed," You know, because there's there's a sense in which there's a kinship of suffering and fellowship that happens there. And so suffering brings that as well. It's pretty neat. It's pretty neat. And there's a fourth thing, a fourth attitude that a Christian should have towards suffering to be mature. And that we read about as we keep reading verse 1. It says, For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. That we should live for the will of God. This is a really interesting side effect of suffering, is that it helps you to cease your sin. There's something about it. Seasons of pain are often seasons of purity. Why? I'm not entirely sure, but it certainly seems to be the case. The side effect of suffering, you stop your sin. Turn, please, to Proverbs chapter 30. I want to share with you a really neat passage. Proverbs chapter 30. First Peter is really not the book for prosperity preaching they really have to stay firmly seated in random scriptures of the Old Testament out of context. But this Old Testament verse isn't really so much for them either. Proverbs chapter 30 verses 8 and 9 says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me. Or just give me what I need. In fact, one translation puts that, Feed me with my daily bread. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. The request, the wise request here is, Lord, I'm afraid if I get rich, that I will turn and forget you. I'm afraid if I get poor, that I will steal and sin in order to get what I feel I need. So he's like, just give me what I need. Like, he's aware that there are dangers of having too much prosperity. And I think that's really interesting. In fact, the Bible says that those who desire to be rich, like their goal is to get rich, get rich, get rich, get rich, that they, they heap troubles onto themselves. That's what, that's what Timothy tells us. And so Paul writes to Timothy. that they heap pains upon themselves. And that is certainly the case. I think it's one thing to be faithful, to try to provide a good product, a good service, maybe I want to employ other people. But when the goal is to get rich, the goal is for self-wealth, you know, then that's a problem. Prosperity can be dangerous, but persecution, well, that, that somehow purifies. I once met a missionary who I can't remember what country he was in. It was a European country, and I don't recall exactly which one right now. But this missionary, he had he had, had a church there, and he was he was teaching and sharing at the church, though he wasn't the senior pastor. He was one of people there at the church. And what happened is, he shows up on a service day to find out that the cars have been vandalized at the church. He shows up again on another service day to find out that the church has been set on fire because they're, they're, they're being persecuted and attacked because of their Christian faith. Now at this point, the people in the church start to get scared. And some of them stop going. Now he says up until that, mo- that moment when that persecution happened, there was a lot of division and like a little nitpicky infighting amongst the people in the church. But all of a sudden two things happened. One is some people just stopped coming because they just they were not willing to, to, to take a chance in order to be in fellowship and, and be you know, gathered with the church there. And, but the rest of the people who continued to come, they just got like forgive the term, thickest thieves. <laughs> Except obviously not But they got very connected and very tight, and all of a sudden they were just bound together, you know? They were connected. And The purity and their commitment to godliness and their commitment to the Lord and the worship, because worship was just like explosive all of a sudden. Because something about the persecution purified. There's a fruitfulness that comes through through suffering if we suffer as unto the Lord. I think the hardest seasons of our lives are very often the most spiritual times we've ever been through. You never spent so much time seeking the Lord, you never spent so much time praying. You never had so much great revelations from God. You never just were so hungry for Him and so eager to to live for Him. And and sin never looked so foolish as when you were in that that time of difficulty and hardship. There's a type of purification that comes through suffering that is well worth the cost. Well worth the cost. Because that's the eternal uh, good fruit. So what an interesting side of that. Let's read that again in 1 Peter 4. It says, For he who has suffered in the flesh... Has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the will of God. Notice that in Jacob's story, when Jacob leaves Laban, or Laban, however you pronounce his name, right? When he leaves Laban, he heads over to see his brother. He's sort of being chased by Laban on one side, and he's meeting his brother on the other side, who has vowed to kill him. And so that is the night as he's sleeping before he meets his brother and thinks, ah, Me and all of my people may die. That's when he meets God. At that terrible night, when he probably couldn't have slept anyway. And he wrestles with the Lord, right? And Jacob wrestled with God. <laughs> or you should say, God allowed Jacob to wrestle with God, to teach him a lesson. And finally, at the end of that time, he's like, I won't let you go until you bless me. And then he touches him, and he cripples him. And he's crippled for the rest of his life that something was wrong with his hip. And that's the point at which Jacob's name becomes Israel, which seems to me governed by God, or now he's leaning on the Lord. Now he's leaning on the Lord. And it took this, like, intense struggle and difficult season in this hard, hard moment of his life to bring him to this place of just, okay, Lord, I'm just gonna, i give up. I'm just gonna trust him. And yet, that's what suffering sometimes teaches us. <clears throat> so that we might, what, live not for the lusts of men or the desires of men, but for God's will. That becomes my goal. More and more, God's will becomes my goal as I experience more and more suffering um, Though I do not not rejoice over my sufferings, but I rejoice in the middle of my sufferings because of the good things that come. So yeah, I think a mature Christian attitude something we all want to pray for. Lord, help me see my suffering this way. Help me see my suffering. Um, It's not really all that great, mentally speaking, to, to answer all of my fears. What if this happens? What if this happens? With, that'll never happen. But rather to answer those what if fears with, Lord, I still trust you. What if that happens? Well, I still trust him. And what if that happens? Well, I still trust him. And arm myself with the attitude of trusting in him so that nothing can shape me. You know, that I know that I, he's with me. So, verse 3. says, For we've spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. Speaking of not only non Jews, but basically a godless group of people. When we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries, we've spent enough of our past lifetime. Now, this—I'm not kidding—is where some people will tell you the Bible teaches reincarnation. No joke. But let's look at that for a second. Verse three: For we've spent enough of our past lifetimes. Wait, I, I've had—I've had a past lifetime. My past lifetime—is this reincarnation? No, the Bible says that each person has a unique human soul, not one borrowed from a previous vessel. <coughs> that that soul goes from life directly into the afterlife and does not get reincarnated. For instance, Jesus rose from the dead in his same physical body; he was not reincarnated. As Hebrews 9:27 says this, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So we die. We die once. How many times? Once, and then the judgment. And then that judgment is, your, your your destiny set. Like, where you go after you die is secured. You're not, you don't have an option anymore. That's just the way it is. We can even look at more examples that show that reincarnation isn't true. Now, you might be like, Mike, why are you bothering with this? You'd be blown away at how many people who say they're Christians believe in reincarnation. It's, it's, it's a shocker. It's a shocker. And it shows that they are very confused about what they even can rationally believe. It's like, uh, I met a lady one time who said she believed there was no judgment after death. And I read Hebrews nine twenty seven, to her. I said, but it's appointed if man wants to die, and then after this the judgment. And she goes, yeah, I believe that too. And I'm like, did, did, did I change your mind? Or are you confused? Like, because either you no longer believe the first thing you said, or you never believed the second thing you said. But anyhow, um, Moses and Elijah, they met with Jesus, Right? Moses and Elijah met with Jesus while he was walking near the earth in a matter of transfiguration. We read about this in the Gospels. Moses and Elijah. Who were they? They're still Moses. It's still Elijah. Not reincarnated versions of them. It's the same Moses. It's the same Elijah. Saul experienced a strange story where he actually used to see and talk with Samuel after Samuel had died. But Samuel has not been reincarnated and brought into something. It's not like this little baby comes out and he's like, Ah, yeah, baby Sammy! You know, or this new Samuel version pops into existence. Rather, it's the same one. And Jesus said to the thief on the cross, Today you will be reincarnated as a butterfly. No, wait, that wasn't me. Today you will be with me in paradise. If his soul was going to be with Christ, period, for all time. That's how it was going to be. So just throughout, you know, there's no room for reincarnation from the Scripture. Um, One last... Uh, One last scripture is when Jesus was telling the parable, or the story, rather, of Lazarus and the rich man, and how Lazarus and the rich man both die, and then they both go to their permanent dwelling place, or separation between the good and the bad location, right? And the rich man wishes he could go back. In fact, he asks, he says, can I please go back to more? And okay, well fine, send Lazarus back. And it's not an option. People don't go back. You die, you get your designation after judgment, and that's it. And so... That story as well. There's just no room for reincarnation in the scripture. So what is it speaking of when it says your past lifetime? Well, it's speaking not of reincarnation, but of regeneration. Regeneration, which is to become regenerative, or a new person, or the phrase we use all the time, which I love, which is born again. I'm born again. Not reincarnation, born again. No, no, no. The same person me is given a new life, a new experience in life, and a relationship with God Through through Christ and the Holy Spirit, I'm born again. This is interesting. Peter writes to his audience as though every one of them was a sinner saved by grace. I wonder why that is. Right? We have we, he he includes himself in this list. He says, We have spent enough of our past lifetime doing the will of the Gentiles. How many of them were converts? It appears as though in the early church. Every Christian was a convert. Nobody was born a Christian. They were all converts. How about today? In the church today, are there people that are born Christian? Or are they all converts? They're all converts. If you're not a convert, you're not a convert. <laughs> you know, there's a problem there. Nobody's actually born Christian. We're born again Christian. I'm born again, and I become saved. I become a Christian. Now, it may happen at a young age. It might happen so young you don't really remember it. But that doesn't. I mean, lots of things happen that you didn't remember. Like your birth <laughs> doesn't mean it didn't happen. So perhaps it's a little fuzzy in your memory just because of age. That's understandable. But yet we all make a decision to move from the old life into the new life. We put our faith and trust in Christ and we become born again. And then the sanctification of God's spirit begins to happen in our lives. We are born again Christian. So this results in people having passed regrets. Because I'm, I'm saved at some point in my life, where I look back and I go, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. Now, these past regrets are sometimes touted as a glorious testimony. They're not. It is not a glorious testimony to say, look at what horrible things I did. And I've I've heard people give testimonies that were in that vein. It was almost like they were boasting about how bad they were. And you're like, oh, you should be proud of that, you know? But then I've heard other people give testimonies, and they did share, and they did the same stuff, but they're just like, and that was shameful, and I wish I, I hadn't done it. And I wouldn't even I wouldn't tell you this if I didn't think it would bless you somehow or help you. And that's a right attitude to have, because they were shameful things, right? He says, we've spent enough of our past lifetime doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatry. He's like, oh, this disgusting, horrible stuff. They're shameful things. So let's look at the list. He says, lewdness is the first one. Lewdness is a general attitude of being okay with sin. It's just I'm okay with sin. It's when you see um, somebody doing inappropriate things in public and they don't care who sees because they're okay. Um, Lewdness is Miley Cyrus. You know this is lewd. That that's lewd. It's inappropriate. It does not belong. And yet it's something that I don't. I'm proud of. I don't care. I don't care. That's me. And this is how it's going to be. And that is certainly the world of of the Gentiles. In fact, pride is considered to be such a, a, a beautiful thing that you could sin in any way you want publicly as long as you're proud of it and people have to support you. And it's just crazy. Lusts, the second one on the list, is when we're motivated by the flesh. So the word lust here just means desires. But it's specifically speaking of the desires of the flesh, or the, the desires of our sinful nature, the will of man, as Peter called it earlier. So lust is sort of where's the origin of my motives? Um I want to say I want to come up in public speak, I want to teach. Is it because I like when eyes are on me and they hear what I say and I think how important makes me feel good? That would be actually a fleshy or carnal reason to preach. And there are those who do this. Uh or is it is it perhaps no Lord, I I think you call me and I want to serve you in this, and of course, like me, with having always pure perfect motives, I'm the best example ever. You know, then that's that would be uh Assuming that my motives are here, that would be a godly thing. So it's not exactly what you're doing, it's rather why you're doing it here. That the motive of the world is is lusts, is desires. It's interesting how you'll watch a commercial. I think it's a Honda commercial, I'm trying to remember, where they like go do random acts of kindness, right? And then they go. And they buy a girl her wedding dress. Like, they go to her, we're going to buy you And they got, like, 15 cameras and all that. They're like, we're going to buy you a wedding dress. Oh, we're just random acts of kindness. We're so nice. And I'm like, they, and she's like, wow, it's $500 dress. That's so great. And I'm like, that is a kind act. But you spent, like, you know, $400,000 on your commercial, and you spent $500 on her wedding dress. Like, don't act like this is about her dress. This is about you making money and trying to get us to think you're nice because you think that'll sell more cars. That's what this is really about. So you've already got your award. <laughs> that's, that's certainly not there. Um, yeah, I think that, that companies who give and then don't tell anybody anybody about it. There you go. There's a good one. Well, it's, unless it was for a tax write-off, I guess. <laughs> Maybe it would just be that knows? So the next one on there is uh, is drunkenness. Um, now, I would add this to this list. Many, many drugs, certainly including pot. Certainly including pot. And there is a lot of propaganda out there right now trying to support the idea that pot is actually totally okay. But if, you, if you're careful about it, you'll look. The things they're saying about pot today are like mirror image what they used to say about smoking in the 50s. It's like they hired the same doctors or their kids, I don't know, who said, literally said in the 50s, smoking's good for you, it's healthy, it brings psychological benefits, it cures cancer, Right, marbles cure cancer. These are the claims that were made, and they said we have science to back it up, and blah, 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 blah. And I mean, back if the internet had been around back then, it would have been even worse, probably. But sure enough, you wait 20 years, and then all of a sudden these these reports come in of cancer and of all kinds of diseases, which would seem fairly obvious if you just gave a little bit of thought. Well, (coughs) add on top of holding large amounts of smoke in your lung for long periods of time and destroying your lungs, the fact that you are now intoxicated or mentally influenced by this drug, and you get into the realm where it's not just, like, a tobacco-type experience, but it's actually, a, like, a drinking-type experience. I cannot be filled with the spirit and influenced by pot at the same time. And what's weird to me is that I have to, like, make a case for this <laughs> in our society, in our culture. Um Should pot be illegal? This is a whole separate question, right? Is, is pot immoral? Yes, pretty much. Most of the time, it certainly would be. And maybe there's medicinal purposes. That's a whole different question, though, isn't it? People aren't, for the most part, using it. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, my back hurts, so I've got to smoke some pot. Yeah, right. Okay. Whatever you say there, buddy. But for the most part, it's just, they're just drug addicts. That's what it is. Or drug enthusiasts, as they would like to be called. But no, this is, this is the drunkenness. This is the same thing the Gentiles use. What do the Gentiles use? Whatever drug is around to use. Obviously, the easiest one's alcohol. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. We have whole stores dedicated to them. They're called liquor stores. <laughs> and people, people get drunk. Most of the, the people who have an addiction problem, there's an alcohol issue that's there. The problem with alcohol is not just that it can kill the liver. alcoholism, excuse me, drunkenness here, not just drinking, but drunkenness. Uh, the Bible's actually not directly opposed to drinking. is not a sinful substance in and of itself. I don't drink, but I can't be an honest teacher of the Bible and tell you that all drinking is sinful, because that's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus drinks. But I challenge you to find one time where the Bible says drunkenness is okay. The Bible's vehemently against drunkenness of any kind. It's not okay just on Christmas Eve. It's like, it's just wrong. You know, This is just a wicked wrong thing. Don't do this. Therefore, I would conclude, anything that leads to the same type of impact as drunkenness would be equally wrong. And that's why I include a lot of drugs on this list, because being the wonderful humans we are, we found lots and lots of drugs since the writing of this passage to add to the list. So the next one on the list here is revelries, and then it goes to drinking parties, and those words uh, that are translated there are a little difficult to separate because they both mean a type of partying, right? Revelries, drinking parties, I'm gonna give it to you the way, the best way I know how, which is, these parties would sometimes be idolatrous parties, like, like an orgy type experience, And other times it would be like that, like a reckless, just party, party, like party on way kind of thing, where they would actually much more extreme than that, and they would just go and and social drinking. Let's go out together, and we'll all, we'll all. This is what my family would always do at our family gatherings. They would always pick a certain night to all get blasted, right? And then that was the night. That was. They were like, well, oh no, I'm not getting getting wasted till you know tomorrow night, okay? So let's keep it easy tonight. And then that night they would all get wasted and sleep in the next day. Probably Saturday, because well, that had nothing to do Sunday, anyways. <laughs> but yeah, that this is this is what we're talking about, like the, the sort of party atmosphere. Now, in our culture, what we've done is is we have we have we have just taken it all to the next level. It's it's like we're kind of looking back to Roman times and saying maybe that wasn't such a bad idea, you know. And we have raves, and we have all sorts of various types of parties. There's different <laughs> styles of parties you can have. But what the world calls partying is not the fun of getting together with friends and having fun activities. No, it's all the sin they bring into it. And that's what the Bible's against. It's not against people getting together and having fun. Um, and in fact, it's a sad commentary on the world that they have to have drinking and have to have drugs to have a good time. I remember back in the day, people would be like,
1: Hey, I don't want to Are
0: you going to go to that party? You're like, well, is there going to be any alcohol? Well, <laughs> like, why? Because there's no alcohol, it's not going to be any fun. Why do you need alcohol to be fun? Like, how boring are you? (laughs) But, anyhow, the last one on the list here is abominable idolatries. Now, here's one where, at least in the United States of America, for a large part, we can say, ha, we don't do that, we don't have those idols, we're not really idol worshippers, that's not really our thing. And that's fairly true, fairly true, except when you go to certain restaurants in Southern California. But, what we've done in America, and a lot of modern countries have done, is we ditched the idols, but we kept what they stand for. And so we would have idols that were gods of wine, gods of money, gods of gambling, gods of lust. And we have kept the things they stand for and made those our idols. And we ditched the actual, the, the image, the image itself. And you can think of it, you've got, you've got idols for everything. Just like nowadays you have Buddhas for everything. Have you noticed there's Buddhas for everything? There's like as many Buddhas as there are saints at this point. There is literally a Buddha and I think it was, oh gosh, what was it? Can't remember the name of the city that it was in. There's a Buddha where you go into this, this hotel and there's this Buddha there. And this Buddha likes it if you dance in front of the Buddha, like strip dance in front of the Buddha. And you're supposed to get whatever you want if you'll do that in front of this Buddha. And I'm just like, you know, I've read a little bit about Buddhism. This just doesn't seem like it fits to me very well. But there's Buddhists for everything. There's the big chubby Buddha. There's the skinny Buddha. There's the baby Buddha. There's the old Buddha. There's there's Buddhas all over the place. I once went into like a vegan type place, and they had a really good looking like like yoga fit Buddha that they had fruit in front of. And you can just you basically have the Buddha to represent what what you want. That's what this it represents. What I want. But if you take away the Buddha or take away the idol but you're still living your life for your selfish desires, it's idolatry. That's why the Bible says covetousness is idolatry. Or the act of, I want, I want, me, my desires, God, not yours. My will, not yours. That's idolatry. That's idolatry. So I like what Peter says. He reminds them of the foolish life they lived before Christ, and in verse 3 he says, we've spent enough of our past lifetime doing that garbage. This is so profound. Because the attitude towards it isn't, it's forgiven, right? But the attitude, yes, of course it is. But the attitude is, you wasted enough of your life. You've thrown away enough of your life on that. Don't do that anymore. It is such a waste. This is so profound. (coughs) I like how Paul says in Philippians that whatever things were gained to him, he now counts them as lost. In fact, he counts them, the word is, as dumb poop. It's the poo passage of the Bible, right? He counts them as poo. He's like, look at all the good things I've done. Look at all the things in my past lifetime that I maybe thought were special and important about me. And I just lay them down like poo in the dirt, like fertilizer. And when I give the, those sinful behaviors that maybe I've enjoyed and indulged in, and I give it to God, out of that can grow something like fertilizer, can grow something wonderful that God that really doesn't matter. But so often, uh, some people, they still hold on to those things, and they think, like, I can have the Lord in one hand, the world in the other, and, um, it's just not going to work. It's not going to work. I mean, how's God going to be able to use me like that? We've got to offer him both hands, you know, and then he can use us. Verse four, it says, in regard to these things, the partying, the worldly lifestyle, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. That word, dissipation, or flood of dissipation, is the idea of wastefulness. But I think it's interesting that it's a flood. The way the world mindlessly stampedes towards sin, it's like a flood. It's like you're being caught up in the wave, you're being caught up in the flow of the water. And if we're not careful, we can be carried away into these things. And then you can become that Christian who's caught up in the worldly way of thinking and living who looks at the other believers swimming up against against the stream, and you think, you weirdos. And then, then you'll be the one thinking that the believers are strange, who aren't doing those worldly things. But that's the, the statement, they think you're strange. This is what the world calls a mob mentality. It's what happens in a riot, when people who normally wouldn't attack a stranger, break a window, and steal random things, do exactly that, because they're part of a mob mentality. The world does not realize they are already part of a mob mentality. And if I could have my own personal commentary on this, I think this is totally exacerbated by the Internet. The Internet seems to be bringing foolishness into large masses of people of the same sort of brand of foolish thinking that just sort of floods on scene through the Internet that I'm just, it makes me very worried. And seeing how lopsided Internet use is where young people who, just in all honesty, lack the wisdom, go on the internet at much higher rates, get this, and then they sort of get the stampede the flood of dissipation in their thinking. And then they look at the older people and the older generation, they just think they don't get it. They don't get it. And they think it's strange concerning them that they don't run in the same flood of dissipation. And it concerns me for where things are going in the next 20 years. Oh, I, hate to, I hate to be of bad news, but it does concern me. And I look up to beyond the next 20 years to what God's glorious kingdom will be but it is concerning. It is concerning. <clears throat> in Ephesians 5.18, it says, um, using that same word dissipation, do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And so it's just a wastefulness. Dissipation would be like a, a, a balloon explodes and everything just, poof, just kind of spreads out, wasted, you used, used up and, and useless. And that's the idea. This flood... This flood of dissipation, it threatens you, it threatens your kids, it threatens your neighbors. And the only way to overcome it is through the cleansing of God's Word (laughs) in our minds, through a connection with the Holy Spirit to guide and direct and lead our lives, through basically Jesus Christ, our faith in Christ. And that overcomes the world.
1: Because you will look
0: and go, actually, world, I think you're strange. You think I'm strange? I think you're strange. Because of the way you're living. I remember being in school. And having decided that I would follow Jesus, I was going to be a virgin when I got married. People thought that was strange. In fact, they made me feel bad about it. As though I had decided to do something wrong. And I was given questions like, well, well how do you know you're compatible? Now, as an adult, I can look back and go, you know... You know you're compatible because you're a guy and she's a girl. That's compatible. Like, this is how it works. You're compatible, trust me. Like, this is not the issue. Like, how do you know if you guys are if there's a if she's a good kisser? And I just thought, later I realized, I'm like, well, it'll be the best kiss I've ever had. You know, like, there'll be nothing to compare it to. So there's been only there, it's it's it is the bar. She sets the bar for me in every way, you know? That in all reality, this should be thought of as normal, but the flood of dissipation is like that you're supposed to sleep around, and you're supposed to experience all these different things, and this is becoming common thinking. And that as long as two people want to, as long as they're consenting adults, and it doesn't matter, this is foolishness, but the world thinks it's strange. The world thinks it's strange. Now, marriage statistics and all this do bear out that the the Christian's way works better Ends up with happier lives, better marriages, longer lasting marriages, and certainly have happier children when their parents are together and having a better marriage. But the world thinks it's strange. They think it's strange. But the world is evangelizing. Uh, well, evangelizing means good news, right? If you get good news. The world evangelizes, but it's bad news. I don't know how you'd say evangelize with bad news. It, it it a bad genusalizes. But this is <laughs> this is what it does. In fact, have you had people say, like, I just don't see why you Christians feel like you have to convert people? I've, I've been approached with this idea several times. Why do you Christians feel like you have to convert people? But I'd like to ask to that person, why are you telling me that you don't think I should convert people? Aren't you trying to convert me to your opinion? Well, no, I don't want you to. Okay, well, you're the one that doesn't believe in converting, so maybe you should not enter into conversation. <laughs> because you don't want to change what I'm doing. Then, But instead, there's this hypocrisy. The reason why the world says Christians stop converting people is because they want to convert people. And they don't want people to think the way you do. They don't want to think the way they do. The world wants to conform you. Uh, Even the so-called people who say tolerance, tolerance, tolerance. They are not. In fact, those who preach tolerance are usually the most intolerant people when it comes to anyone who doesn't agree with their views on tolerance. They think it's strange. Godliness is strange to them. You and me may very well get laughed at or mocked for not cussing. Like you did something wrong by not cussing. You might get laughed at laughed at or mocked for staying pure for marriage, for caring about what is good and right. You might be mocked for going to church on Sunday. Where'd you go over the weekend? I was at church. Oh. <laughs> no. no, 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 that's cool. That's cool, though. That's cool that you went to church. That's cool. For not drinking, for not lying, for not cheating, and for not using... <laughs> You might be ridiculed and mocked because the world thinks it's strange that you don't do these things. How weird that you don't do that! Because they don't. You need to know how wrong and clueless a lot of the world is. Not so that you could be think you're superior or better, but so that you can know God's ways are superior. God's ways are better, so you won't be swayed by these things, and so that we'll realize when they look at me and think I'm strange, it simply means I'm being alive. I'm being alive. I'm drawing some attention by good behavior. That's exactly the way I want to draw. They're doing the right thing. So rejoice. Resolve in your heart. There's a separation between you and the world. That's a good thing. But that separation is bridged by you opening your arms and saying, Hey world, come over here. I'm not going over there. Come over here. And you're reaching out and you're drawing them in as best as you can. And verse 5, it says here that they, the world, will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. This realization does two things, that they'll, they will stand before God. The person ridiculing me will one day stand before God who will judge them. It One, it motivates me to share Jesus, because I don't want them to stand before him, naked in their sin. I want them to stand before him, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus forgiven. So, so I'm going to share Christ. and This is always my motive for sharing Christ. Like, and, and I don't know about you, but I have to have a motive, because I know people aren't always going to want me to share Christ. So I've got to get this motive going. I know they'll stand in judgment. But it also does something else. It lets me rest in God's sovereignty. That even if they're ridiculing, or if they're upset, or if they're bothered, or if I get fired, or if I get unfriended on Facebook, the worst thing that could ever happen to me, that I go, God, you're sovereign, and I'm cool with that. You're in control, and I trust in you, and I rest in you. God is our refuge. He's going to work it out. He's going to work it out. Well, um, I'm going to call it there because next, in the next verse, and here's a little preview for next week, We're going to get into this passage. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who were dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. (laughs) Let's pray. (laughs) Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We pray, Lord, that we would get not only the information, but the application of it. We are certainly called to survey our lives and say, is there something worldly, something fleshly, something of the past unsaved life still abiding in us? And if there is, we've certainly spent enough, too much time <laughs> living that way. And we're going to turn to you, Lord, with our feet and our hands and our heads, with our eyes and our mouths. I want to live for Christ truly so that we can be vessels of time. It's certainly our calling. And Lord, it seems that when we surrender to you. That is when you do glorious you do awesome stuff. You are glorified. You are exalted as you deserve. So Lord, we offer ourselves to you as vessels and to honor. You. And we pray that you fill us and guide us and lead us. That you let us be seen by the world to be strange, that we might be. The strangeness that draws them to pay attention that they might hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us be alive. Empower us, encourage us. And as we deal with suffering, Lord, our suffering, we're going to do it with the attitude that Christ has. To look at it, Lord, to see the fruit of it, see the goodness of God, and just to trust you, Lord, so that intellectually yeah, and especially emotion, we're secure, even if we're experiencing it. Mm. In Jesus' name.